0: 1st Peter, 1st Peter chapter 2, continue on here and study in our 1st Peter in this class and uh, we're going to pick it up in 1st Peter chapter 2 and we've obviously spoke about quite a few things and I don't like to go over too much of it, it draws it out, but to set up where we're going, we got down to verse 5 in chapter 2 where he said, ye also as lively stones. And it's a continuation of the sentence that he started in what we call verse 4, where it says, To whom coming, speaking of the Lord, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, this would be a place where you could easily go into a study of the priesthood of the believer, and you could go into that, say, as a topical study. Uh, We won't do that, but we will make reference to the fact that it is a New Testament church age doctrine, the priesthood of the believer. Now, the reason I think it's so important is because it gives us a vision and a picture of what a child of God, a believer, is supposed to be like in these days. When you study and read your Old Testament, what you'll find is that you have the book of Genesis, which is actually, it's 50 chapters, but it covers a real expanse of time, okay? And so, the book of Genesis is a very, very important book, Um. When you begin to think about the book of Genesis and you realize that it, you know, how much time it covers, then you realize of the 39 books of the Old Testament, it is quite significant. So those 50 chapters represent over 2,000 years, really about 2,400 years, of the 4,000 years of the New Testament. Now, the reason that's important is because. So much happens there, and it has in it what we call, in Bible study, the law of first mention. Now, the law of first mention is such that many, many things that you find mentioned in Genesis are what we call first mentioned. Because as all other books in the world, the the book, the Bible, is the example of all things. Now, we know that the Bible, as we call it today, the book, the Bible, that's what Bible means, is book, Biblios, we know that it has 66 what we call books, but we know that God providentially and purposely put the beginning book, Genesis, which means beginnings, the Genesis of anything is the beginning of it, he put it in there. Now, lest we have to go back and study the whole Old Testament or do an Old Testament survey, I'd like to sum it up this way. In Genesis, we have Abraham. We have a priest named Melchizedek, referenced also in the book of Hebrews later in the New Testament. But then we come to Exodus, and Exodus is a calling out, you could say. Exodus is a departure. That's why when people leave, they call it an Exodus. When you have, a, in, in certain parts of the world, maybe you have, say, a, a, a hurricane or a cyclone or storm surges. Or those things coming in, then people, you know, they move towards inland, and the highways look like the Exodus when the children of Israel left Egypt. In that book of Exodus, and in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you have the law as given under Moses, and you have the establishment of a priesthood. Now, a priesthood is to be studied and understood in light of the Bible, and not of your experience of religion. When you take any kind of religion that has majored on priest and priesthood, okay, anything outside of what God set up, you want to set that aside and go get out the Bible and learn what it means. For example, if someone came to your bedside and wanted to give you last rites and absolution, they don't have that power. But there are churches that claim that power. The Roman Catholic Church claims that power. And you have a variety of priesthoods you take across Europe and uh, Eastern Europe. When you're over there, when we've been over there doing things, you have the different, you have the Orthodox Church and stuff, and they have a, a, all kind of different teachings on what a priest is in that religion. But if you take the Old Testament example, those priests were tasked, with many faithful duties, things that they should carry out faithfully. One of them was the preservation of the writings of God, the scriptures, the writings. Scriptures, from the word script, it's writings, the writings of God. We know that most of the writings were dictated, you might say, as in holy man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and someone would write it down for years and years. And to this day, it's one of the most effective ways of writing a letter is a person talks, says what's on their mind, someone takes it down, the stenographer takes it down, or the dictaphone nowadays, a little recording device takes it down and somebody types out the letter, puts in the punctuation, etc., and then it's reviewed, edited. I'm saying all that to say that one of the duties of the priesthood in the Old Testament was not just making sacrifices and offerings, was preserving the words of God down to the very punctuation the jot and tittle it's called. So you come over to the New Testament and when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross it rent the veil of temple it revealed the hypocrisy that had been going on uh, during the 400 silent years and after the 400 silent years and it did away with the priesthood because he became our great high priest. Now then what is the priesthood of the believer? We are made, Revelation 1, priests and kings under our God for the purpose of serving like the priest did in the Old Testament. They served under the high priest. Some of them, their duty, when there was a tabernacle for all those years, was to pack it up and carry it and assemble it. Each time they moved, exactly how it's supposed to be. Then when, it, when they built the temple under Solomon, then they were to maintain stuff. And some of them did music some of them did cleaning, etc so the purpose of pointing out something here where he says an holy priesthood okay and if you're going to write a couple of verses down write down exodus uh, Exodus and chapter man I think it's 19 let me think a minute Exodus 19 yeah yep yeah. and revelation one. And you'll be able to tie the Old Testament over to the New Testament about being priest. The point of this passage is, ye also as lively stones are built up and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So our life, okay, our calling in life as a child of God is to be as serious about the things of God as those priests were. So we believe in what we call the priesthood of the believer. Now that means you go straight to God when you confess your sins. You don't go through a, a man or a woman. Either one. That also means that before God, you and I are responsible for faithfully preserving the Word of God. Identifying where the Word of God is and faithfully hanging on to it. And pointing others to it. That's important. And why is that important? Because someday when we get to the end, he's going to ask us, were we faithful priests unto him? So when we come to this passage, that's when we begin to realize how important it is. Without jumping ahead too much, look down at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, now watch, a royal priesthood. So he made us priests and kings. A royal priesthood. King, priest. And holy nation, a peculiar people. That holy nation is no geopolitical country on the face of the earth. It is not, never was England. It never has been the United States of America. It is not. And honestly, that's not up for debate. Because there's not one verse in the entire Bible that has a geopolitical nation or group of people entitled to claim those promises. None of the promises to Israel or for any earthly, visible, physical nation but Israel. The spiritual promises to Israel, to us as New Testament believers, are that, they're spiritual. But there is no holy nation that's geopolitical nation on the face of the earth. This is talking about believers. Now, I know that may seem like a small thing, but it's really very important, it's quite important. Because what you visualize and think and imagine is what moves you, directs you, basically dictates your actions and thoughts and responses. You as a child of God, myself as a child of God, he said, verse 5, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. So the picture is God puts you in the body at large, but he puts you, as he says in Second Corinthians 12, members in particular in a body of believers. And then what he says, and holy holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So our life is not about sacrificing as in trying to gain merit. We are offering up spiritual sacrifices by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're serving under Him. And if you begin to view who you are as a believer that way, It should not give you the big head or the puffed out chest. It should sober you as a believer. Because it's not a privilege nearly as much as it is a responsibility. It's a great responsibility that he expects of us. And so, as he goes down through this passage, because we're going to come again to the Royal priesthood, etc. in verse nine, watch how he develops it. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth in him shall not be confounded. He's quoting over there in Isaiah twenty-eight, and there's some other partial passages that it refers to. Now why is this so important? Because he is that chief cornerstone. Now, when we begin to think about this, And we talked about it last week, about a building, a foundation. How that that cornerstone gives direction, it gives limits, it gives the quality of it, it gives the integrity of it to the entire building. So it is with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and the manner in which you you treat the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in... uh, Matthew 21, 41 and 42, if you want to make those notes, okay? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Well, why would they do that? He just gave them a parable. See, they answered him and they said, now, if, if somebody lent out this vineyard, okay? And he starts all the way up in verse 28. And he told him to go work in the vineyard. And the one son said, I won't. But then he repented and did. The other said, oh, yes, I will. But he didn't. Okay. Then he gives him another parable. And starting in verse 33, about a certain householder which planted a vineyard, hedged around about, digged a wine press, verse 33, built a tower, let it out to husband. In other words, he put them in charge of it and went to a far country. And then he came back. Well, when the time, the first thing he did was he sent his servants, verse 34, And they took his servants, verse 35, beat one, killed another, stoned another. He sent other servants, and they did likewise. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, verse 37 of Matthew 21, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And they say, verse 41, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. They are condemning themselves as a nation. Watch, verse 42. Jesus saith to them, Did ye never read the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, is marvelous in our eyes. Again, quoting Psalm 118 there. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, given to a nation, bringing forth fruits thereof. And then he makes a statement here that's a great statement when it comes to personal work, when it comes to finding the Lord in salvation, and when it comes to understanding God's working and people's responses to it. Verse 44, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You see, everything depends on which side of the Lord you put yourself. If you come unto Him as the chief cornerstone and fall on Him and ask for you know, mercy and grace and repentance, you'll be blessed. Okay? Now, you'll be broken in the right sense. Your will will be broken. Your heart and mind are broken. And then what does He do? He heals you up and He directs your life. If you will let God break you and you will break yourself as in humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the relationship starts and it continues. But if you wait till it's time for the stone to fall on you, you're grinding powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard these parables, they perceived that he spake of them. And so did they fall on him and be broken? Verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. They wouldn't fall upon him. Now why is that important? Back in First uh, Peter 2, verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Two words in the passage, elect and precious. Now, <coughs> it's my firm belief that in the same manner in which most things that, that people attempt to counterfeit, in the same manner in which they deal with them, is the same manner in which you should deal with doctrine. For example, ultra or hyper-Calvinism is not a valid doctrine. It's a heresy. I have very little sympathy today for those who try to hedge it a little bit and say, well, I can see their point. I see no, there is no point. That's right in teaching that God has predestined or elected anybody ahead of time individually to go to hell or to heaven. There's not one verse in the Bible that teaches that. Not one out of 33,000. I can guarantee that. You say, well, would you debate somebody? The only thing I would ever do is ask them if they're going to believe the verses, as they are written, not as they want to define them. Just take the word elect. All you've got to do is take an English dictionary, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and use it. I know how to look up the Greek. I've had Greek language. I even tutored it and taught it. I've had Hebrew and tutored it. But I can tell you, all of that knowledge has led me to a deeper belief that if I'll let the English language speak as God gave it not as others have listen you can take English and you can make a mess out of it if you keep paraphrasing it this is not a difficult book this King James Bible to understand especially if you keep a dictionary handy now all you got to do is put it on your phone put it on your pad put it on your computer it's a piece of cake so I'm going to say this he is (coughs) elect and precious elect, ready, God determined that His Son would redeem the world, and He determined it before He made Adam, and here's why. God has foreknowledge. I cannot comprehend that anywhere near on the level that God has it, and you cannot either. And if you try to, you'll either lose your mind or you'll lose some of your doctrine because you can't comprehend it. You see, if we could see the future the way God does, we would interfere with the future. And God does not. He intervenes, but He doesn't interfere. He looked ahead and said, I'm going to make Adam. His foreknowledge that you and I cannot grasp said, well, if you do that, you're going to have to make a way to redeem him or let him go to hell forever. Let him be damned. So it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that he would do so. He was the elect. He was the chosen to do it. Now watch. Elect, it says, precious. And he that believeth in them shall not be confounded. I know this. In spite of all the learning I've been exposed to, in spite of all the study that I've done hundreds and thousands of hours, I come out right where I went in as far as, as far as, My faith on the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and my faith in what He preached. If my Lord preached whosoever will may come, then that is the doctrine. Never let yourself take an obscure passage of Scripture and try to apply it to a clear passage of Scripture, but rather do the opposite never interpret a passage of scripture by something that's obscure or that something somebody twists <clears throat> now you could take and you could go off on a on a rabbit trail that is chase something besides what you're hunting the idea was in when they would hunt raccoons and stuff at night they wanted a dog that would stay on the trail and not go after a rabbit trail that's why we call them rabbit trails in preaching and teaching and talking so he said he's precious. How precious is he? Well, we should preach about precious. We should talk about precious. We should make him precious. Precious carries of uh, so many, so many things. It carries value, rarity, power. The number of synonyms for precious are many. Not one of those synonyms can be define precious by itself. That's why that word precious is in here. Under you, therefore, which believe he is what? Again, what? Precious. Watch. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So he's not just the cornerstone, he's the headstone. He's the beginning, alpha. And the end, omega. He's both. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. He's the alpha and the omega. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, these quotes are abundant. When you look at Simon Peter's preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 4, these Old Testament quotes are abundant. He says, comma, in verse 7, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So now someone says, aha, they were appointed. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The appointed isn't that God looked at any one individual and said, you will stumble. No, what he said was this. And it's so clear. If you get this, I can promise you, I I don't make claims hardly about anything. Because I don't know how sincere you are. I don't know smart you are biblically as in willing to take what the bible says not scholastically okay i don't know but i know this god said if you will fall on the rock the lord jesus christ it will break you you have to get broken to get saved because if you don't know you're broken you can't get saved amen and it doesn't matter if you have a hundred million dollars in the bank you're broken without jesus christ that's why hitting rock bottom helps a lot of people. They hit the bottom and they start to break and they realize, you know, I got nothing to stand on. I need to fall upon Jesus Christ. So unto you therefore which believe, verse 7, is precious. Now watch, but unto them which be disobedient, will not obey him, will not listen to his word. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even of them which stumbled the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Here's what they were appointed to. Okay? <clears throat> if you will not trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find darkness. If you will not trust the Lord Jesus Christ, fall upon him, you will walk in darkness. You will end up in darkness. It will grind you to powder. That we looked at Matthew chapter Twenty-one. So when you come across these passages, if you will take that passage, whereunto also they were appointed. Someone says, oh, you see right there? It's so simple. Here's the simplicity of it. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will not, it will grind him to powder. It will bring darkness. It will bring darkness. Departure from God Almighty at the judgment. It's really simple. Whosoever will. It is the statement entirely cover to cover. When you come to Romans 9, which we're not going to divert too much, that honestly, you could, this is why there's so much in, in teaching this Bible and preaching it verse by verse. This is why there's so much in reading your, your Bible verse by verse. Once, once you hear stuff like this, the next time you go to read 1 Peter, it'll help you. It'll be there, I hope. I hope it'll slip in there and permeate your thoughts. You go, yeah, I remember that verse and that verse. In Romans 9, he said, I will have mercy on, upon whom I'll have mercy. Someone says, there you go. He decides who'd have mercy on. No. He set up the, the, the standard. He set up the rules. Here's the rule. He said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And then he said, here's whom I will have mercy on. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will. You getting this? That's whom he will have mercy on. Is mercy ever deserved? No. It wouldn't be mercy. Is mercy ever earned? No it would not be mercy. Is mercy ever owed anybody? No, 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 no. It is mercy. He said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have. So it's entirely up to God to make the requirements or the, the bylaws of mercy. And here they are. Whosoever will. Whosoever will fall upon this rock shall be broken. But, if you will not, It'll grind you to power. That passage in Romans nine is about Pharaoh. Someone says he he made Pharaoh reject God. No, you know what he did? It's really simple. <laughs> he looked at Pharaoh and said, "Okay, Pharaoh, here's your chance. Boom. Here's your chance. Boom. Here's your chance. Boom. All those plagues. At every point, Pharaoh fudged and and did a little two-step here and a little lying there and a little backsliding there. God said, "Okay, it's enough." You say, well, it says he hardened his heart. He did by the things he brought in. You know why? He was testing him. Do you know that we learn from God how to view that and how ourselves to be aware that we don't allow ourselves to get into Pharaoh's condition? Who is the Lord that I would obey him? Watch out. Watch out. The dissenting voice that God intended to come from the pulpit, from the soul winner, from the believer in their action, is not a dissenting voice about governmental rubbish. It is about one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what we're supposed to be the dissenting voice about. But you know what the average Christian thinks they're supposed to be talking about and complaining about them is government, government, government. Laws, laws, rules, rules. Listen, here in the United States of America, it is ridiculous how obsessed with liberty people are. When Paul said in Galatians 5, Use not your liberty for an occasion to flesh. Okay, I settle that to say that when he says whereunto they also they were appointed, he, he lets you know how. Watch, verse 9. But ye... Are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which were in time past not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. How? By coming individually to him. And and then one of his bylaws is you come individually unto him, and I'm gonna make a corporate out of you. Now, a church is not supposed to run like a business, a, a worldly business. Brother Wood said the only, it's the only business. Brother Jack Wood, out of Texas, going be with the Lord, old cowboy preacher, said the church is the only business that'll stay in business as long as it stays out of business. Okay, so we are a corporate body. That's why it's called the Marine Corps. C O R P S. I can remember. You ever done something? in and just stuck with you, helped you remember the word. I can remember reading aloud. It must have been about third or fourth, fifth grade. And we would each have to read a section in the classroom. And I remember this particular teacher, she was pretty strict and had a few, you know, eccentric ways. And I can remember she got to me, and I was supposed to read this paragraph, and in there was the term Marine Corps. And I said Marine Corps, mispronounced it. And I'm telling you, she just, railed on me in front of that class of stuff you said that was horrible no it was good i have never forgot that word since then I... <laughs> and i and I learned that day and that's probably why i have such an affinity for the marine Corps because she explained to me what a corps was a corporation watch. a, a chosen generation chosen how you choose Christ you're in everybody who chooses christ gets in god made the bylaws a royal priesthood. We are made kings and priests under our God. Revelation 1, six, And holy nation. There's no geopolitical nation on the... The word nation is people. That's why in your passport it says nationality. Your nationality. Okay? It's people. The word nation is people. That's why he talks about tongues and nations. It's really simple in English. Really simple. That's why in sports, you know, you have all these different fans that are that are a nation, you know. Uh, when I was working uh, up up there in Kentucky or somewhere, yeah, Kentucky, it was Big Blue Nation. Then there was somewhere in, in Texas, it was the Orange Nation, just whatever, nation, people. Now watch. He said, a holy nation, now a peculiar people. Now, we're not supposed to be weird for the sake of weird. And you don't have to dress like some extreme religious group, but I'm going to tell you what. If you look just like the world and somebody couldn't tell you different from the world the way you dress, you're trying to blend in too much. Okay? Didn't say stand out for the purpose, but we ought to be peculiar. And so we are, in God's eyes, supposed to be that way. In verse uh, 9 there, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You know, God calls everybody out of darkness into light. It's just a matter of whether you'll go. See, unless you want to read this, with this predestined, predetermined, unconditional election, I told a fellow the other day he's preaching on salvation come this coming week, and I said, man, one of your points ought to be the unlimited atonement, because one of the L in tulip for a Calvinist is limited atonement. There's no limited atonement. Your Bible says He already died for the sins of the world. The world's sins are paid and the only thing that's going to send any person into eternity under judgment to live in eternity without God is that they would reject the full payment already made. Already made. You see, you see how clear that makes your Bible? You see what a blessing that is? Into His what? marvelous light. Now you could, and rightly so perhaps, if we're going to preach, for example, a passage, you could preach a message on being a royal priesthood. I've got a few I've preached on that. A holy nation. We ought to be a people that are holy. Be holy as I am holy, he said. That's a whole subject in itself. A peculiar people. We ought to be different, not for the sake of being different. There's a lot of people out there You see them in line all the time at the store who are different than everybody else because they got to be different. No, we'll be different by virtue of the fact that we're going to be faithful to Him. We're going to come out from among them and be separate. He's going to call us out of darkness. Look at verse 9, into His marvelous light. Now watch, which in time past were not a people. If you, at your local church where you gather, look around you. In the vast majority of Bible-believing churches, you're going to look around and see a lot of people who would have nothing in common or very little were it not for Jesus Christ. But because they have Jesus Christ in common, they're now a people. See, which in time past were not a people. The Gentiles meant nothing to God. Now, he says in Corinthians that there's three groups now. There's the Jew from the Old Testament. There's the Gentile, the world That's outside the Jew, and then there's the church of God. Not a denomination, a, a phrase about God's people. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. See, that's so important. Over there in the book of Acts, they got railed upon by the leaders and threatened, and then it says when they were released, they went to their own company. Who's your company? Who's your people? Your people might be spread out around the world. The people that I'm closest to in the body of Christ might be in different corners of the world. But there are people. But are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And we'll uh, tie it together here and come back to verse 10, which is subject on itself. Now, in so doing, let's remember something. Picture this, and we'll tie it together. Take a couple minutes is all. In the Old Testament, you find God. He makes Adam, makes Eve. They get cast out of the garden because sin entered the world, death by sin. And he's protecting them from eating of the tree of life so they will not become an eternal monstrosity. And then Cain and Abel come along, and then Noah comes along, they get off the ark, and this comes along, get through the Tower of Babel. And then Genesis 12, this character named Abram, who ends up being named Abraham, shows up. And God begins to promise and to work in such a way that he's going to call the people, an earthly people, out through Abraham. And we know it went Abraham, and it went Isaac, and it went Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And then we know that it came along and uh, after Jacob dies and they're down in Egypt and they, they get on the wrong side of the Egyptians. The Egyptians you become scared of them and they start oppressing them. And God says, okay, I'm going to call them out of Egypt. Egypt's the type of the world. He calls them out and He leads them out. The term Israel is not a term it that was meant to indicate a geopolitical nation. Israel's the name of a man, Jacob. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, a prince with God. I believe one of the great mistakes believers make, sometimes it's made from the pulpit, is to confuse the geopolitical nation with who God calls Israel. Unless your mind go off on track or you start listening to some kind of rubbish out there, you know, like on YouTube and all that rubbish... We are not talking about the church ever replacing Israel or inheriting their promises, none of that. And it was a good thing, 1948, when Israel as a geopolitical nation got their identity. That to me has nothing to do with actually being in the promised land. Now it may have set it up, and God may be working, but let us remember one thing that between Israel as a spiritual nation and God, there is a rift because they rejected their Messiah. And so God has dealt with them. We're not to do this. We're not to be against them. They They are enemies for the gospel's sake, Paul said in Romans, but not to us as people. That's between them and God. Their problem is not because they are God's chosen people and the world hates them for it. Their problem is they crossed the Lord and rejected the Messiah. That is not anti-Semitic, dear friend, at all. It's pro-Semitic. Because what is going to have to happen is not the rest of the world acknowledge them as a geopolitical nation, but for them to acknowledge the Lord as their Messiah And get on the right side of Him. And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better for that to happen. So if you want to keep your head clear when it comes to news. If you want to keep your head clear when it comes to viewing current events. Set aside all that geopolitical stuff. And stop looking for all the stuff that's going to happen. Because so many of the things that God said about Israel being blessed and receiving Him. Happens well into this whole judgment period. And we know there's a pre-tribulation catching away of the body of Christ of believers. That does not mean that there will not be great trouble before then. If you will read your history, what happened in 1000 A.D., what happened in 1400 A.D., what happened during the Crusades, Those things are much worse than anything that's happening in any of our lives today. So it can get really crazy and really bad and has nothing to do yet with the second advent. Here's how you know it's counting down. If you want to know this before I close, here's how you know it's counting down. Take your watch and look at the second hand. And the second hand is moving forward. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick, tick. Take one of the little sand egg timers, you know, hourglass, tip it over and watch the sand. Here's how you know it's getting closer and closer is time is running down. But you don't have any idea if it's going fast or slow or medium because so you've got to quit using current events to evaluate where we're at. I could take current events and I could have you just in a tizzy, either direction, just by manipulating the current events that you can find a quote. But it's not about that. It's about the fact that when they as a people begin to come back, they are His chosen people. But He said, now are the people of God. Now are the people of God. Verse 9, a chosen generation based upon what? Upon receiving Jesus Christ. It is our, our responsibility to behave as kings and priests unto our God in this life. To behave as those who are going to inherit eternal promises. To behave as a peculiar people. To behave as those who have marvelous light. We had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And that's where we should be standing and living walking father take these thoughts and use them we pray we ask it in jesus name amen